Please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As we continue our study in this book and in the three pastoral books, having gone through 1 Timothy and looking forward to going through Titus. So 2 Timothy, we'll be looking at uh, verses 14 through 26 today. Before we do so, let me go to the uh, Lord and ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are thankful that we can meet together freely here today um, to worship you, to learn from you and about you, to hear of the redemption of our souls, to hear how we ought to act in accordance with that. We are thankful for the church, the people that you have set aside for the foundations of the earth, that we can come together and share concerns and share praises. It's just a, it's an encouraging thing to hear your people Talk about how you've worked in their lives and how you're continuing to work and how they would like you to work. And we are thankful that you listen. You are concerned with the small things of our lives just as you are the large things. And we are um, infinitely grateful to what you give us and what you will continue to give us. And so now we pray that you will work with us that you will show us the truth of your word, convict our hearts of sin, because it is there. We pray that you would lead us to the truth, show us your wisdom. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So, one of the things that I've thought about as I've read through this text is, uh, many of you know I'm a teacher and deal with lots of different kinds of students, one of the students, one of the kinds of students that I'm probably least, uh, uh, least like, I guess, that actually does happen. Sometimes we just don't like some of our students, uh, are the know-it-all types. You know, those, you know the know-it-all types, the ones that want to tell you all that they know before you can even say one thing that you know, even though you're being you know, paid to share the things that you know and they're, they're being asked to listen, but of course they want to tell you. Um, and... We see this quite a bit because they're, they're kids and they're just excited. They want to impress their teacher. I guess we get that, you know. Um, the worst, I think, are adults that do this kind of thing. They know something about everything um, because they want you to know something about everything, and so they tell you. I think, truth be told, we are all know-it-alls at times because we all like to be seen as smart and knowledgeable. Think of what the opposite is. In general, we like to be praised for the things that we know. I think we start when we're little, you know, when, the, when mom is excited that we can say the word daddy or like say our ABCs. We, we start young, trying to impress people just by saying the things that we know. And if, again, there's nothing wrong with this in some cases. I think it becomes wrong when, we, when it's about receiving recognition rather than building up someone else or bringing glory to our Lord. So in our text today, Paul is separating this aspect of the worker that is approved by God from those who spread what he calls irreverent babble. I think there are lots of things that could constitute irreverent babble in the church and among God's people. 
there's also many ways that we could speak in order to be called a worker approved by God. I think a lot of it comes down to motives, really, how we speak to one another and how we uh, praise and lift up one another. Much of it, again, comes down to our motives. Are we building up ourselves or, or we, do we want to build up others, edify the body? I think sometimes it's a hard distinction because the lines can get muddled, right? Most of us uh, know or every time we say something, there's usually some tiny vein of self-indulgence in there, even if it, even sometimes it's just a giant vein of self-indulgence. It's this constant battle that we're trying to weed out in our Christian lives. And so today, we're going to look at some examples of what this kind of talk looks like, ways that we can weed out the bad, so to speak, and plant good seeds, ultimately our approval before the before the Father rests in our Savior, our Lord and Je- Savior Jesus Christ. However, we should demonstrate the righteousness of Christ working in us when we show ourselves to be a worker approved by God. And so as we look at this text, I want to consider t- those two types of speakers. First, the irreverent babbler, and then second, the worker approved by God. And so with that, let's go to the text, 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 26. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great now in a great house there are only vessels or there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, in this text, we start with the words, remind them of these things. We have seen similar kinds of wordings in 1 Timothy as Paul would say something and then he would instruct Timothy 
Teach these things to the people. Remind these things to the people. What's the idea here? Well, don't forget, Paul is in prison. He knows that his time is drawing to a close. He wants to impart as much information to the church as he can during that time. And what better way to do that than to send out his disciples that he has been training up for years. Rather than write everything down, which he could, can you imagine if Paul was asked to write his own systematic theology? Uh, It'd be incredible. But rather than do that, he wrote for us on the hearts of the men and women that he taught. He made a deposit in them using his own language and that so that they would in turn teach others. You remember that was what we looked at in last week's message. So now Timothy is being instructed to keep the truth in front of the people. And then he's given an obstacle that will likely stand in his way. There are two types of people, and every one of us exists in this continuum between them, constantly moving about, sometimes representing this one extreme of the irreverent babble, babbler and the other extreme of the worker approved by God. I think all of us can say that we've been on both ends and then we'd like to just be somewhere in the middle on our best days. And so we're going to look at those two, um, those two ideas in the text. First, we'll look at the irreverent babbler. Paul first uh, charges Timothy and us not to quarrel with words. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel with words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So what is the result of these quarrelsome words? It ruins the hearers. This word ruin is where we get our word catastrophe from. Peter uses the same word in 2 Peter 2 when he's describing what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. A catastrophe. Um, what will ha- and in Peter's context there is actually talking about what will happen to false teachers and those that listen to them. So very similar kind of context. So the idea here is that using this kind of speech, these quarrelsome words, we can bring a catastrophe to the hearer. The kind of disaster, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, that is hard at best and mostly impossible to recover from. And then he goes on to qualify this in verse 16. He says, Avoid the irreverent babble, or avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It leads them into more and more ungodliness. When I first read this, it reminded me of the the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, contrast this with the idea of what sanctification is, the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts even now, the divines said of sanctification that we are enabled more and more through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So irreverent babble leads us more and more into ungodliness while the Holy Spirit is more and more enabling us to live unto righteousness. So in this way, what does this one, this irreverent babbler, do by spreading their quarrelsome talk? They are at war with the Holy Spirit himself and his work, directly opposed to what God is doing in the life of the believer. 
What does God do with obstacles? Well, He wrecks them. Look at verses 17 and 18, talking more about this, this kind of talk. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And he, then he lists two, Hymenaeus and Philetus there, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. He said it, it spreads like gangrene. The literal text here actually says word, their words are like a gangrene pasture. If you can imagine such a thing. You know gangrene is rotting, decaying flesh and just a pasture full of that. Again, think of the contrast that we have here. Paul alluding to this idea of a pasture that's supposed to be growing and fertile and, and giving life. Think of the words of our Lord Jesus in John 10, verse 9. What did he say about the pasture and about those that come in? He said, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then what will they do? They will come out, or they will come in and go out, and they will find pasture. The work of Jesus is to bring the believer into the fold and provide for them Pasture. What's the idea for the sheep? What is this pasture Jesus is speaking of? So that they can grow, so that they can thrive as sheep. What does he say in verse 10? So that they can have life and have it abundantly. That is the purpose and the work of our Lord. So what is the, what is the work of this irreverent babbler then? To provide a pasture full of dead, rotten tissue that can only steal, kill, and destroy. So who does this put the irreverent babbler at odds with? The Son of God. He is an obstacle then to the truth and the life. Paul gives an example of these two men that were listed, that they were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. What does that mean? Well, think about it. We believe in this idea of the second resurrection, that Jesus will bring, Jesus being the firstborn of the resurrection, and he will bring our bodies up from the dead, will redeem our bodies along with our souls, and they will be reunited, and we will be physically in heaven for all eternity. This is the hope that we have, right? An, uh, an eternity without corruption at all. And so what are these teachers teaching? That this has already happened, and you missed it. These teachers would strip the believers then of their hope, spreading death rather than spreading truth and life. Think about that for a minute. These two who were teaching this, this is the hope that we have, right? I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if, if we don't have this, we don't have anything. And these, these two were teaching against that. What does this look like in the church today? I think it takes lots of forms, this, this irreverent babble that would steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, anything that seeks to destroy rather than build up I think um, think of doctrinal talk. Uh, debates over doctrine can become this any time that you're arguing over doctrine in order to break someone down rather than to teach them. This type of argument where you want to, to show someone to be uh, a bad person, to show them to be false rather than to teach them to truth. And I think there's an important distinction here. We always want to call... False doctrine, false. We're not saying that. The goal should never be to destroy the teacher in the process, only to call the doctrine what it is. And I think a lot of times Reformed folks in general struggle with this. 
Uh, you've often heard me refer to someone called a cage stage Calvinist. This is someone, in my estimation, that would would rather destroy than build up because they're they just are so excited. Of, well, that's not really the right word. Um, they're they want to argue and they want to prove people wrong rather than teach. That is not helpful to the body. Some doctrinal issues aren't about truth at all, but rather about conjecture, like end times guesses and drawing important life-changing conclusions from some obscure text. Most recently, I've heard about the end of the world. It's going to happen next Saturday, apparently, uh, according to conclusions that someone drew from Luke 21, Revelation 12, and the Great Pyramids in Giza. Uh, I wish that was not a joke. Um, And of course, sadly, this person has a sizable following. And so what are those poor souls going to do on September 24th? Where's their hope going to be? What about non-doctrinal issues that would destroy rather than give life? What about sending the pastor an anonymous note to tell about how bad he is? I'm not talking about anything that's happened here that hasn't happened to me here, but that has happened to me, not here. Um, What about gossip about folks rather than talking to those people? To those people, um, that'll destroy a, a flock in a heartbeat, right? A pasture of gangrene, for sure. I think we all understand this kind of thing that will destroy, this kind of talk that destroys, and we know that we're guilty of it from time to time. I think everyone is. And how do we, what do we do when we know that we're guilty of it? I think the important thing is to get friends who will tell you the truth about yourself. I've had friends tell me, Mike, you complain too much. That was good for me. I didn't like them for a while, but it brought life to me and to people around me. It's good to ask yourself personally, what kind of conversations stir up when I'm around? When I'm around, do people start complaining? Is that what I bring about towards people? Or do people talk about good things when I'm around? It's important. If people feel safe gossiping to you, Well, it's probably because you're a gossip, and that's not good. That's not bringing life. That's causing death. What about your convictions? Do they match Scripture? Does Scripture give the same weight to your convictions that you do? I've met Christians who say that it's only proper to grind your own wheat, for instance. And if you care about your family at all, and wife, if you want to be a Proverbs 31 woman... You will do this kind of stuff. What kind of weight does Scripture give to that? None. If this is your conviction, that's fine. Do it, but don't kill others with it. Because it will bring death. It will destroy a flock if you think that is the gospel. There is freedom in Christ. Don't put chains on folks with your convictions. And I think we could go on and on here, even at the risk of spreading death ourselves. So we need to be careful. But what is the goal that we should push for? Rather than a list of of do-nots in this regard, I think it's better of something to shoot for, to have a goal, a positive goal in this. And Paul, thankfully, gives us one, the second type of person, a worker approved by God. Look with me at verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. 
Paul calls us to present ourselves as workers approved by God. No need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. I think some of your versions probably say something to the effect of rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly separating the word of truth or something like that. It's actually, uh, the, that's actually the better translation here. It's, a, it's an engineering term which meant to make a straight road or make a straight path, like cutting into the ground and making a straight line through it. Paul is calling us then to do what with the word? Make straight lines. Teach it plainly, correctly, rather than meandering this way and that. We are to make straight paths to the truth. This is what builds up rather than destroying the soul. Continuing in verse 19, he goes on. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names, or who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his. Again, we see this idea in John 10 with Jesus saying that the Lord knows his sheep and he calls them by name. Not just in John 10, but most or all of the Old Testament and the New Testament is this same idea. The Lord has a people for himself. They know him. They call him by name. He knows his people. He's gathered them from the foundations of the earth. This truth that Paul writes here in verse 19 The Lord knows those who are his is foundational to the assurance of a believer. This is life-giving. Our faith rests on the way, on the one who has called us with his own voice from the beginning of time. And what about let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity? Here is a calling to holiness to the people of God who have been delivered out of darkness and into his light called from a life of sin and shame to a life of holiness and godliness, free from guilt, free from shame and fear, those things that would rob us of our freedom and seek to destroy us. These are life-giving words. And so then Paul compares the worker approved by God with a holy vessel. There in verses 20 and 21, he's talking about the vessel's that are for honorable use versus the vessels for dishonorable use. Once, that was us. We were the dishonorable vessels. But now we have been given honorable use. By who? By the Lord of glory. He's chosen to use us. And so what should we do? We are called then to cleanse ourselves of this dishonor. Again, ultimately a work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but something that we also work toward each day. Not for our salvation, but for our sanctification. And as a part of this separation from speaking godliness and preaching life-giving words, we are called to flee youthful passions there in verse 22. And I think this is pointing to the immaturity of the young believer and, and the old that would make unimportant things the main things, the youthful passions We are called to pursue good things, life-giving things, rather than being quarrelsome. Again, we are called to build up others. We are called, instead of building up ourselves, we are called to be 
selfless in our words, to be kind. Think about what that word means, to be kind there in uh, verse, verse 24. The, the, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. It's the opposite of quarrelsome. It is going out of your way to give to others, to be able to teach. Rather than arguing and quarreling with someone, your goal is to teach them. Being a teacher rather than an arguer. Patiently enduring evil. Why do we patiently endure evil? Because we know better. Evil doesn't. They're dead in their trespasses and their sins. Again, he qualifies this patience. Correcting opponents with gentleness rather than being harsh. This is hard. This is really hard. Some of the folks that I've uh, had discussions with over the years, it was difficult to not be harsh with them. But it would have been easy because we have the truth, right? We're in the right of it. And so think about that for a moment. There's no reason then for us to be harsh with them. Rather, we have every reason to be gentle with them instead. And in doing so, I think we're given some encouragement here. Verse 25, correcting his opponents in gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's an incredible encouragement to me that by simply acting right, God could use that to bring about repentance in in a person, which should be the ultimate goal of my words anyway. And so I think that brings us to the the question, how do we do this in in our Christian walks? A Christian singer by the name of Toby Mack, some of you may be familiar with him, um, he's on Christian radio. I don't couldn't really name any songs that he sings, but I did remember this one because it was on the radio for so for so many times. Uh, and I really appreciated these words. He said this. He said, "It's crazy to imagine words from my lips as the arms of compassion." So the words that we speak can be arms of compassion. Mountains crumble with every syllable. Hope can live or die, so speak life. Encouraging to me that the very words that we speak can actually give compassion to someone. I would say more than most things, our words can cause people to, what does it say, crumble and mount and give hope to them. The words that we choose to speak to someone are important. They can bring hope to their soul or... They can do the opposite. They can cast them out into a vast ocean of loneliness. James, the, uh, in the writer of the book of James, uh, the brother of Jesus, he compares our tongue to the rudder of a giant ship, a small thing that can turn a whole vessel. Just like that, our words can build or break. They can give hope or they can give despair. We can speak death or we can speak life. So what words then, brothers and sisters, are we choosing to speak? How can we be helped in this in our Christian lives? Because frankly, we're all guilty of doing the opposite that we should. I think scripture memory is a vital and part of a believer's life for this reason. Because what do the scriptures do by definition? They are the words of God. They bring life. 
And so the more we know them, the more we can use them to give life. Studying the Scriptures, again, the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus came to give life. And the more and more that I can look at the Scriptures and point people to Jesus through them, the more that I can speak redemption to those that I'm talking to. He is the one that brings life. So then let us talk about Him. And that's just about it, right? Do we really believe that Jesus came to give us life and a life abundantly? If so, what will we want to do for others? Why would we ever lead folks to what Paul calls this gangrenous pasture when we can lead them to the truth about Jesus Christ? Why would we ever gossip in order to destroy someone's character when we can lift folks up with the words of comfort and security about our Lord Jesus. Rather than focus on some odd doctrine or some weird conviction that we have, why not focus on Jesus Christ, the subject for which the Scriptures were given to us in the first place? And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, hear this. We have a finite number of words in this life. We all love to be seen as smart and knowledgeable We're lying if we say the opposite. Do we really want to do that then, to see ourselves lifted up or to see others lifted up, to see our Lord Jesus glorified? I think we need to be honest with ourselves first and foremost. We all need work on this. This is an important part of all of our sanctifications. And so with that, let's ask for forgiveness, not only of our God, but to those whom we've spoken death to. Let me encourage you with that. In the same way, let us commit then to speaking life to one another. Let us commit to do our best to present ourselves as a worker approved by God. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has done the work of redemption for us. And it's in Him that we find freedom and rest. And so let us talk about that freedom and rest that we have in Christ with everyone that we speak to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, this is difficult because, again, we like to be the center and we like to defend ourselves with words and the craftier we feel we are, the better we feel we are. And so, Lord, help us because... The words that we speak can bring life or death in your church and outside your church. And so we beg your forgiveness, one, for not speaking life. And then we beg your help and your mercy and your grace in order to be better. Help us, Lord, to speak life to those we come in contact with, to speak and to talk about Jesus to talk about the redemptive story that all of Scripture tells us about. Lord, help us to bring life, to bring mercy to all that we come in contact with, with the words that we tell them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.